This is a recording from the University of Virginia and the More Than the Score lecture series, made possible by the university's Office of Engagement. Health transcends all geographic, cultural, religious, and economic barriers, and is perhaps one of our most universal and unassailable human values. Rebecca Dillingham is an expert in tropical infectious diseases and a leader in UVA's pioneering Trans-University Center for Global Health. On October 24, 2009, Dillingham presented an overview of UVA's pioneering role in making medical care available to the poorest of the poor across the world. She's introduced by Tom Folders, president of the UVA Alumni Association. Um, I have the honor um, and actually very, very great privilege to, uh, to introduce Rebecca Dillingham. She's the assistant professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases and International Health and in the Public Health Sciences at the University of Virginia. Dr. Dillingham received her B.A. from Harvard Radcliffe College and then traveled to the Ivory Coast, or Cote d'Ivoire, where she lived and worked on HIV prevention for two years uh, prior to entering medical school at the University of Missouri, Columbia. Dr. Dillingham served as a resident in the internal medicine and as a fellow in infectious diseases in the UVA health system. She completed her master's in public health at UVA and then joined the faculty in 2006. Her major clinical activity is the care of adult patients infected with HIV. Dr. Dillingham's research projects include the development of improved nutritional approaches for patients infected with HIV and living in resource-poor uh, countries, the use of cell phone-based technology to help vulnerable populations improve adherence to antiretrovirals, I practiced that word, <laughs> and the evaluation of impact on changes in water and sanitation on the incidence of waterborne disease. This research takes place in Haiti, rural Virginia, and South Af Africa, respectively. She has also led the development of global health, uh, health curriculum across the grounds through the National Institute of Health Framework Program of Global Health. So once again, please welcome uh, Rebecca D Dillingham. So good morning, and thank you all for being here on this rainy morning. And I really apologize for sitting down, and I may be a little bit fidgety, but I think I'll, I'll do better sitting down. So I'm really excited to share some reflections this morning on the tradition of leadership that UVA has in global health. Global health has been pretty trendy. I think we see it in the news a lot, particularly in the last few years, particularly with the increased funding from um, organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And some of us may not know uh, that uh, UVA has really been involved in what is now called global health for decades and has really been a leader and I'm really proud of that and in fact it's what brought me here to Charlottesville in 1999 was having uh, spoken to Dr. Richard Garant um, who is sorry that he can't give this talk today. He's actually the director of the Center for Global Health and I'm delighted to get to stand in for him because I'll get to brag about him a little bit more than he probably would. Um, so in any case, uh, during this talk um, I uh, will be reflecting a little bit on some of the context that has uh, made global health such such a trend, so visible um, in, say, the past five to ten years. Um, and then I'd like to talk a little bit about why it's important for universities to be involved and how proud I am that the University of Virginia is so involved. And finally, give you some specific examples of the way University of Virginia has involved its faculty, um, its students, um, its collaborators, its community um, in addressing the very, very grave challenges that we face uh, in global health. 
So I, I did already receive one group of questions from the audience. I'm going to address some of it during my talk. Um, I'm happy also we're going to leave plenty of time for questions at the end. Um, but if you have something that's really burning during the talk, please go ahead and raise your hand. Um, okay, so probably the... Oh, we did turn it off. That's right, to save the battery. Um, probably the global health slash global disease issue that we're all thinking about most right now is the H1N1 uh, epidemic, the swine origin flu. And certainly um, one could define global health in terms of global disease. When you look at a map like this that shows uh, how how vast this epidemic is and, and particularly how concentrated it is in North America, um, uh, we, we understand that disease, particularly acute infectious airborne disease, uh, is quite humbling um, in terms of letting us know uh, that the diseases of, of others are, are, are also our own. Um, they spread rapidly. Certainly, uh, the experience of the of the world population with SARS and with preparation for avian flu has led scientists, communities, public health professionals, all of us as individuals to think carefully uh, about improving our ability to communicate, to stay aware, to protect ourselves, to protect others from, from disease. So I, airborne disease is one way of thinking about it, and it certainly brings it very close to home um, when you go from a map like this to the quite alarming curve here and over the last few weeks of the H1N1 isolates in our region. However, I think that when we really start thinking about global health rather than global disease, there's another disease uh, that serves as a better paradigm, and that's HIV-AIDS. I'm not diminishing the importance of uh, epidemic flu, certainly. It's causing a great deal of suffering right now. But HIV-AIDS is an infectious disease, as we all know, that is a chronic disease that requires even more complex interventions to be able to manage it. Because once people are infected with HIV, uh, hopefully um, they will uh, have many years of life, but in order for them to have many years of life, they need to receive medicines, they need to receive primary health care, and as you can see, and I'm sure as most of you know, the epidemic is focused in sub-Saharan Africa where access to medicines, access to health care is very limited. So thinking carefully about how we as a global community, um, how and whether we as a global community um, should participate in the delivery of care to people infected with HIV has really, I will argue over the next few slides, changed the way we think about global health. Um, I uh, imagine that most of you have seen maps like this before, and, and I personally find some of the numbers sort of mind-numbing. It's hard to get your head around two, over two and a half million new infections each year. I think that it's humbling and important for us all to realize that there's still 56,000 new infections in the United States each year, and that unfortunately that number hasn't changed in a decade. So we're not doing a great job either of um, preventing uh, the spread of this disease. But in order to really get a feel for this disease, I think it's important uh, to, to meet the people who have suffered most. This is an incredibly courageous man um, I've had the privilege of meeting. I hope some of you may have seen his picture before. He's. Uh, um, his name is Joseph Jeanne, and he's from the central plateau of Haiti, uh, which is a very rural, very poor part of the poorest uh, country in the Western Hemisphere. He's, um, 
here in this picture being, um, <clears throat> he's been brought to the hospital uh, of the of Zami Lasante, which is the partner in Haiti of Partners in Health, the group um, co-founded by Paul Farmer. And he's very upset um, because he feels that the money that was spent to bring him to the hospital would have been better spent on, bringing, uh, on building him a coffin um, because he can't imagine that he's going to get better. He's suffering from HIV and from tuberculosis. And when I use these pictures um, for trainings um, in Haiti or in Southern Africa, uh, when I ask the healthcare providers what's going to happen to this man, and even if I ask healthcare providers in this country what's going to happen to this man, uh, what do you think they say? He's going to die. Yeah. Um, and I think that how many of you have read Paul Farmer's work or read the book about Paul Farmer? Imagine a fair number of you in the audience. So, um, Paul Farmer is somebody. Uh, let's take a step back. At Harvard, I was a history major, and uh, I uh, know that there, for any historians in the audience, there's certainly arguments about whether it's great people. Um, Usually we talk about the great men, but great people um, that uh, really make changes in the world or whether it's larger social um, movements. And, and I think it's both, but I think that Paul Farmer is really one of the people, one of the great people who has said to um, us in the United States and to others around the world that we can't afford to look away from the Joseph Jeans. We can't afford to look at him and say, let's triage him. He's, he's going to die. We have to look at him. We have to think about him. We have to work to help make him better, to deliver a complex health intervention. And we also have to look beyond him to say, what is it that allowed him to get to this state? Why is it that he can't find work in the Central Plateau? Why is it that the Central Plateau is so deforested that uh, there is no possibility of growing crops? How is it that he has better access to a coffin maker than to a physician? And I think that because Paul has asked those questions, um, he was able uh, to work on the individual level uh, to bring Joseph um, back to health. This is Joseph about six months later after he had received treatment for tuberculosis and HIV. And this, you know, I love that gasp that always comes when people see this. You know, everybody, and I tell you, the physicians in our hospital system also can't believe it because we would probably also have recommended a hospice consult for this young man. But the fact of the matter is, is that HIV and tuberculosis are treatable diseases, even in settings like Haiti. Um, and beginning in the late 90s, Paul Farmer and his group worked on this. Others did as well, the World Health Organization, Medicine Sans Frontieres. And I'm very proud to say that now about 4 million people in resource-limited settings um, are receiving antiretroviral care. Antiretroviral care is not as complicated as it used to be. In the, in the early days, many of you may remember, when we first had medication beginning in the late 80s and early 90s, it was you know, 20 to 40 pills a day, very strict regimens that had to be um, managed in regards to food and sleep and several, it was a mess. Um, and they had horrible side effects. Now, um, we can actually treat people with one pill once a day. Um, which is far easier, but as any of you know who take medications every day, even one pill once a day, if you're looking at taking it for the next 50 years of your life, um, is a big deal. Uh, you need to see the doctor every few months to check for safety labs. You need to be able to have a prescription that you can get refilled. So it's still a complex intervention and an incredible accomplishment. And I would argue that as 
a nation, as a world, making the commitment um, to treat these people uh, has really changed the way we view global health and has challenged us to not look only at the medical necessity of, okay, well, how does the medication work? How does it kill HIV? But also, how do we get the medication to people? How do we prevent the spread of disease? How do we find people jobs again. As you can imagine, Joseph, when he looked like that, wasn't doing much work. Now he actually has a great job. He goes all over the world advocating for people living with HIV AIDS. And Paul Farmer likes to joke that he's gone from looking like Skeletor uh, to looking like he needs Lipitor. Um, so he, he's gotten quite hefty, actually. But um, he's doing very well and reintegrating the millions of people that were facing um, death and orphaning their families and leaving their farms, reintegrating them back into a community is a very important challenge that I didn't learn about in medical school. Finding ways to build them houses when they lost their homes is not something that I learned about in medical school. This is far more complex than just one simple management question about a particular global disease. And Fortunately, Paul Farmer is not alone, um, and nor am I, nor, is, nor, nor any of us, and we've had some um, important advocates, including this recent visitor to Charlottesville, um, who advocated with Senator, the late Senator Jesse Helms um, to George W. Bush about creating the PEPFAR program. And one of the questions on this sheet is where are some of these medications coming from um, to treat HIV, and uh, in the clinics that I work in, the the, the Medications come either from the World Health Organization's program, uh, the Global Fund, or from PEPFAR, which is the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. So um, these are a couple of ways. And as you can see, the quote that Bono used um, to talk to George W. Bush is one that I think resonates with many of us and uh, speaks to the reasons um, people have decided to become involved in global health. Other people have made different arguments. There's certainly religious, moral, value-centered um, uh, uh, reasons that we might become involved in global health. There's the human compassion of seeing someone like Joseph Jun. But there are also economists, um, including another recent visitor to um, Charlottesville, Mohammed Yunus, who won the uh, Nobel Peace Prize in 2006 um, for his work on microfinance, and the man who wrote this book, visited UVA last year, the end of poverty, Jeffrey Sachs, people have made the argument that it's important economically for all of us to think about global health because losing millions of people to HIV or to malaria or to, to tuberculosis impacts all of us uh, in terms of diminishing our markets, um, destabilizing economies, etc. And so health um, underlies all of that and we need to um, become involved as a society and global health in order to uh, positively impact the economic development worldwide as well. Others have argued that it threatens our very security. The CIA actually in the early 90s um, was the first to really sound the alarm about HIV in Africa. I don't know if you remember, but President Bill Clinton um, in the early 90s was not interested in global HIV. Nobody was, but the CIA was, and they were saying that the magnitude of this epidemic was going to destabilize militaries, whole economies, whole societies, and they were arguing for that. So there are lots of reasons to get involved in global health. Um, and 
Practically, it's become more possible to become involved in global health. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has spent $10 billion over the past year, and this, the uh, past um, seven years. Um, and this article and the graph here uh, talks about what, as you can see, is entitled the Gates-Buffett effect. This money has actually catalyzed a great deal more um, uh, from other public-private partnerships and also government agencies. Pretty amazing to know that the money for global health even in these very difficult economic times, has quadrupled since 1990 from about $5 billion to almost $22 billion. So there's a lot of money being spent um, uh, to try to address global health challenges, including HIV, AIDS, but uh, certainly lots of other ones also. Um, and I would argue that it's very important that there are people that know how to spend that money responsibly. Um, about 30% of the money is coming from private donors, so it doesn't necessarily have a whole lot of oversight. Um, and I think that the leadership in global health needs to be very careful about thinking about how we can have the most impact. In addition, <clears throat> we've got a whole lot of people interested, a lot of people care, there's money to do something. And therefore, their jobs. And at the, on a university campus, this makes a big difference for us. I see there's some, probably some students in the audience. Um, when I was graduating from college in 1993, there weren't jobs in global health. Now, in, you know, if over how many years is that? <laughs> I'm coming up on 20 years later. There are lots of jobs in global health. And providing the training that our students need um, to be able to provide the leadership to address these complex issues is something that we're really interested in here at UVA um, and at the Center for Global Health. Um, it's, there was a survey performed by a group of universities interested in global health this year. And in the past three years, the number of undergraduates and graduates that are participating in global health programs has doubled. And that's just continuing. I know that here at UVA in our global public health minor, um, we have to turn away well over half of the people that apply uh, because it's such a popular um, uh, area of study at this point. So this is the, um, I had to put this slide in, the Consortium of Universities for Global Health is a group of universities um, led by um, some familiar names, uh, University of Washington, BU, Hopkins, uh, Emory, um, and Duke as well as UVA. I'm very proud to say that President Castine signed on to the statement um, put together by the um, Consortium of Universities for Global Health, indicating that we as universities can and should be organizing our resources to provide integrated responses to the complex health needs of a region or country. So this conference that brought these universities together actually occurred last month. But I would like to point out to you that UVA has been really at the forefront uh, of global health for decades, and that it really fits with many of the values that have been a part of this university since its founding. So in order to just sort of give us a summary of what is global health, I argued that it's not really just global disease like H1N1. That's certainly a part of it, but that's not the only thing. Global health, then, uh, is an area for study, research, and practice that places a priority on improving health and achieving equity in health for all people worldwide. So not simply um, 
focusing on the health of our own populations or simply focusing on the populations in resource limited settings, but looking for equity and health worldwide so that all people are able to achieve their full potential. Global Health emphasizes transnational health issues, determinants and solutions, um, a multinational approach to solving these problems, not just a bi-national uh, or single nation addressing these problems. Involves many disciplines within and beyond the health service sciences and promotes interdisciplinary collaboration, something that universities should really uh, be excellent at, and is a synthesis of population-based prevention with individual-level clinical care. And that's in contrast to public health. Certainly, again, not to denigrate public health, but public health focuses more on a population level. When we're talking about who's going to get the swine flu vaccine, you have to talk on a very broad level. You say pregnant women have to get it. But then how do you look someone in the face that's come to your office to say, I really want the H1N1 vaccine. There are difficult trade-offs that are made in public health um, that uh, are, are hard. And in global health, we don't say to the Joseph Jean, you know what, it's not appropriate for us to give you expensive medicines. Instead, we say, we need to figure out a way to make the medicines less expensive so that we can provide them for everyone. Um, so it's a, it's a subtle difference, but important. So. Um, these uh, next slides are some real giants at UVA who have been involved in global health uh, for decades. So Dr. William Parson, I'm not sure if anybody knew Dr. Parson. Um, uh, he was uh, the chief of medicine um, in the late 50s and early 60s and uh, was a really, uh, I wish I could have met him. Um, he uh, played a concert at Carnegie Hall at 16. He taught a course here um, in, uh, at UVA in the English department on Dante's Inferno. Um, he apparently hated slides, so he'd be very disappointed in me and would probably hate PowerPoint. Um, but uh, he uh, was also a really um, very talented endocrinologist and physician who ended up moving um, from UVA uh, to Kampala, Uganda to become the chief of medicine at McCary University, which is often called the Harvard of Africa, um, particularly before before it was decimated by Idi Amin, and that was when um, he was there. Um, and uh, as you can see from his quote there, he felt strongly that it was uh, an important um, uh, imperative of his uh, to get out of the comfort of UVA and go to what Dr. Garant likes to call the real world, um, where he could really make a difference. And um, he, while there, was instrumental in training um, uh, tens, dozens of uh, African physicians um, who still remember him and we're very proud to have welcomed the current chief of um, medicine at McCary University here at UVA two times in the past three years, a wonderful woman who remembers Dr. Parson um, from when she was a student. So um, he was one of the first. Another, Dr. Thomas Hunter, I don't know if any of you know or knew Dr. Hunter, um, uh, really uh, a leader also who, who provided this um, important perspective, I think, on, on what our role should be relative to health. Um, but he didn't travel as much. He had suffered from polio as a child. Um, he was the dean of the School of Medicine in the late 50s and early 60s, a contemporary of Dr. Parson. Um, and what he did was to uh, formalize and structure the uh, training of physicians from resource-limited settings um, by 
physicians from the United States. So he really focused on training, um, improving the access to health care in resource-limited settings by improving the access to physicians. And that was part of the question that someone asked also, um, and I'll come back to it. But I think that UVA has long been a key part of trying to prevent or reverse that brain drain by helping to train physicians to uh, work within their own context and care for their own populations. So that was Dr. Hunter. Um, I'll mention that Dr. Hunter was also responsible for Dr. Richard Grant's first airplane trip to the Congo um, right after he was married. Um, so there, there's this lineage here. And Dr. Ed Hook, is anybody, did anybody know Ed Hook? Uh, was the chair of medicine. Um, and he was the first to really develop bi-directional research collaborations um, with particularly in Brazil and I think that that is another piece in addition to the training of international physicians there have also been um, the there's also been the development of really creative international research collaborations that create knowledge uh, that can address um, the issues face um, uh, in these poor countries. So this is Dick Garant in a variety of settings in Brazil and, and here in Africa. Um, I, many of you may know him. Uh, he started the Center for Global Health um, in 2000. That was after he'd been involved in a collaboration in Brazil uh, for over 30 years. And his work has um, led to uh, this the, the Center for Global Health with this mission. The University of Virginia's Center for Global Health promotes health in resource-limited settings by fostering the commitment of students, faculty, and partners from many disciplines to address the diseases of poverty. We have um, sponsored the work of many students, as you can see, both students um, from around grounds as well as medical students. And these bars represent the number of students that we have provided scholarships to go and do global health uh, projects. Um, we also support the uh, professional development of junior faculty member from our partner universities. These three, Sami Amadou, Edgar Musi, and Lafuna Mavandu, um, are all from the University of Venda. M. Savilleja is from Manila, the Philippines, um, and also participates in one of the UVA choirs. These have all come to UVA to advance their careers and then gone back um, to continue their uh, important work in their home countries. These are the sustained collaborations that uh, UVA has between a, a whole variety of um, countries and universities, uh, Brazil, Ghana, Uganda, China, Philippines, Bangladesh, South Africa, Tanzania, and Haiti. You can see that um, we've been able to involve a lot of UVA students in these collaborations, as well as inviting fellows here uh, to advance their training um, to better prepare them to address the challenges in their own countries. Um, so in addition to the people, and I believe that the people are really probably the most important thing. Um, I, I, I wouldn't have thought that initially, but really, once you get um, down to it, um, being able to train individuals who can go back and make a difference, I think, is one of the most important impacts that we can have as a university, both um, our own students and then people from our partner institutions. But certainly another thing that uh, universities are able to do and we're proud to be involved with is developing new knowledge. And this gentleman, uh, Dr. Lee, actually unfortunately died several years ago of a brain aneurysm, but had been the Secretary General of the World Health Organization. And he defined what I think is an important concept, the no K and OW do gap. And that gap is between what are our scientific advances and whether or not we're able to apply them. Um, and 
he argues that that's what should really be a focus of our work in global health, is how do we take what we know and actually make sure that it helps the people who need it. A great example is insecticide-treated bed nets. So insecticide-treated bed nets are one of the best strategies to decrease child mortality worldwide. And yet only about 10% of the people that need bed nets have them. And they really shouldn't be that hard to get to people. But apparently they are. And we need, perhaps, um, to get out of our own uh, medical schools and start asking the commerce school people, OK, or the engineers what we need to do to um, develop a supply chain that could get these uh, insecticide-treated bed nets out to the kids who need it. So just wanted to um, provide a couple of examples of important research that's been done um, at this Center for Global Health to both measure problems and to help define their solutions. This is a slide that summarizes um, some of the 30 years of work that Dr. Garant has done to define the problem of having diarrhea. Now, diarrhea is never something that we like to talk about, um, particularly not around mealtime, but um, it's, a, it's a fact of life for a majority of the children in resource-limited settings, so much so that I'm often surprised that when I go and ask people whether diarrhea is a problem, um, they'll say no. And I say, but how could that be um, when Diarrhea is the leading cause of death in children's un children under five. And many people tell me that, well, why would we go to the doctor for that? It happens every week. Um, so diarrhea really um, is, unfortunately, a fact of life, usually caused by um, contaminated water or food. And while people accept it as a fact of life, it has very serious con consequences, including growth shortfalls. So HAZ2 is the hyper-HZ score at age two. Um, and uh, it is estimated that by, um, by age two, about three centimeters have been lost, so that's about an inch. By age seven, um, about eight centimeters, or coming up on three inches, um, have been lost uh, for, uh, in kids that have suffered from multiple episodes of diarrhea as children. So, okay, it's not terrible to be short. I'm the shortest member of my family. Um, but unfortunately, it's also an indicator of other kinds of growth that have not occurred, including um, cognitive growth. Uh, particularly in the children under age two, repeated episodes of diarrhea have very severe consequences for brain development. And I think that that's one of the greatest tragedies um, when we're robbing people of their ability to achieve their full potential from the very beginning um, because of the dirty water that they're consuming. So um, Dick and Dr. Bill Petrie, also in the um, Division of um, Infectious Disease and International Health, have actually uh, been very successful at convincing the Gates Foundation to the tune of $30 million that this is a really important problem. And they are now leading an eight-country study uh, to try to really define what might be strategies um, to break this cycle of diarrhea, malnutrition, um, and ultimately often death or uh, perhaps worse, morbidity, meaning loss of growth, loss of cognitive ability, um, loss of quality of life. And so we're very excited about this study, which is starting again, as I said, in eight countries, including um, two in Africa and four in Asia um, and two in South America uh, to, to help define this problem um, and to develop solutions. 
Another example of trying to bridge this no-do gap is led by Dr. Chris Moore, um, who works in Uganda in the same hospital where Dr. Parson um, was uh, chair of medicine, um, as well as another regional hospital. Sepsis is the caused by blood, bacteria in the blood usually, leading cause of death in hospitals um, in uh, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, and often um, not managed very well, despite the fact that we know exactly how to manage it here in the United States. And what Chris has done um, through a very innovative research program and also training program of physicians and also nurses and, and care assistants is uh, to develop strategies that are appropriate for Africa to manage sepsis and to actually save the lives of those people coming into the hospitals. And we're very proud of the work that Chris has done. In Haiti, this is actually in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Um, these are my colleagues there. Uh, we are working on um, a problem that I think is uh, pretty strong horrifying to, to all of us who are parents and probably to everyone. Um, these are, this is a curve that shows what happens to babies born to HIV-positive moms. So we're very fortunate in Haiti to be able to prevent the transmission of HIV from mothers to children. Um, but unfortunately, we're still seeing that they do fine up to about six months, and then they drop off. What do you think, what happens at six months to kids? that? They get weaned, yep, exactly. So these kids are getting um, weaned off of the formula that's provided by the government, and they immediately drop off, and unfortunately about 10% um, of them die. Uh, so the problem that we were faced with was what could we provide as a weaning food um, that would be... Uh, feasible in Haiti, very poor country, and that would hopefully prevent uh, the, uh, the, the drop in growth um, and also, of course, the mortality that we were seeing. And these are two nurses that are uh, leading the project uh, that provides actually peanut butter. Now, most of us in this country shudder when we think of providing peanut butter to kids under a year old. Um, and uh, when we... Um, because of the issues of peanut allergy. Now, when I brought up peanut allergy in Haiti, all the pediatricians looked at me like I was completely crazy. Um, so um, peanut allergy, we have discovered, is not a problem there. Peanuts are grown in Haiti. Peanut butter is a staple there. And peanut butter has a lot of um, wonderful qualities, despite our horrible experience this last year with our Virginia-based company um, that had the salmonella-contaminated peanut butter, unfortunately. Usually, um, peanut butter does not grow back bacteria well because the moisture content is very low. So it actually is a, a really good food to use to try to feed babies because it generally um, has very high levels of calories, fat, other things that they need, and very low levels of bacteria. It's easy to store. It's palatable. And in fact, um, despite the fears about peanut butter in this country, um, the project has worked remarkably well um, with the kids suffering far less diarrhea, growing better, and not having any mortality due to diarrhea um, in this peanut-based um, feeding strategy that we've tried out in Haiti. So we're very pleased about that uh, and are particularly pleased because it's provided work um, for Haitians who are growing peanuts and making the peanut butter uh, locally. So... Um, while we're excited about all of those projects that have solved problems um, uh, or have, have described problems or solved problems that are disease-based, um, diarrhea um, uh, and sepsis, uh, we wanted to push ourselves to uh, really fulfill the 
full potential, to, to really challenge ourselves to um, meet the full challenge of what global health uh, global health's definition is today, including the multidisciplinary aspect of it, um, including uh, the collaborative nature um, with other, with our, a true collaboration with our partners, um, including uh, both an individual and a population level approach. Um, and thanks to a long history of collaboration um, in this region of South Africa, northeast region of South Africa, very rural, former homeland, um, meaning sort of like a Native American reservation under apartheid. They, they were able to maintain their um, traditional leadership structure, which protected them in some sense, but also meant that they never got any of the development that the rest of South Africa enjoys, including roads, schools, etc. Um, and uh, they have been struggling since the end of apartheid, struggling successfully uh, to uh, develop that kind of infrastructure that they did not have. UVA has been involved with this region for uh, decades through environmental sciences with Hank Shugart and Bob Swap as the leads there. And while Hank and Bob have done terrific work on, on climate change and um, et cetera, the, their partners at the University of Venda, which is located here in Toyandu, also mentioned that in addition to thinking about climate and environment, we really needed to think about health. And so Bob um, and Hank invited uh, Dick Grant and myself to go there and think about uh, what might be a, a health um, project that we could get involved with that was relevant to the people uh, in this region. And overwhelmingly, it was felt that that uh, health issue was water um, and uh, the diseases that it can um, entrain when it's dirty. So we've been very fortunate with generous support from the um, Jefferson Trust run out of um, this uh, building in the alumni office, as well as from an alumna in California, uh, to be able to launch on a five-year project to work with two communities uh, to assess their water supply and their health outcomes and to develop strategies to improve it. This is a collaborative project of the School of Medicine, School of Nursing, School of Engineering, School of Architecture, and School of Education, as well as Arts and Sciences. So we're very proud to be able to bring everybody together um, to, to work on this project. It hasn't always been easy. Um, we've often found as faculty members that we'll be sitting in, the, um, uh, in a room talking to each other and using the exact same words and then all of a sudden we realize that we mean completely different things. So um, <laughs> even the communication um, on our own side is sometimes complicated. Um, but I would have to say that I get to do a lot of exciting things, um, including taking care of my two beautiful children. Um, but this is, this is my most favorite project right now because of those challenges and I think because of the uh, potential for real um, uh, change. So we have, I'm, I showed that picture of the fellows, three of them were from the University of Venda and many of them have documented that there's terribly poor water quality in Limpopo province. Most people are collecting water from surface um, sources like this one. As you can see, if you're drinking out of the same water that you're washing your clothes in, etc., not optimal. Um, and uh, many of the children suffer from diarrhea. Um, it's unfortunately the second leading cause of death um, in uh, Limpopo province following HIV AIDS. Unfortunately, the problem is getting worse, not better. Since 2004, the rates of diarrhea in children have increased 170%, and the rates are two times higher than anywhere else in South Africa. So it's a, it's a big problem according to um, South African statistics, and here you can see uh, that uh, those causes of death. 
Um, so our challenge was to engage students, faculty, and other partners at UVA and at the University of Venda or Univen to create innovative solutions to ensure access to water and sanitation and to improve water-related health outcomes in Limpopo province. So how do we do that? Well, this is a very busy slide, and I think it represents sort of the, the, the hopefully the promise, but also the challenge of uh, global health. So uh, with the University of Virginia and the University of Venda, we involved a variety of different um, disciplines um, and a variety of different strategies, student projects, summer study abroad, faculty mentors and researchers, um, to begin to address this problem. Um, and our goal is to take what have been in the past individual projects of students and faculty members that are by nature small. Um, we have our own funding streams that require us to have clear hypotheses that have, you know, specific aim number one, two, three, and this is how we're going to address it, and that's what this is going to be our outcome. Um, we wanted to go from projects to a program that could really lead to improving access to water and health in um, Limpopo. So a program um, that could hopefully seamlessly, but not in reality completely seamlessly, integrate um, the knowledge and the practice of physicians, of nurses, of engineers, of planners into a solution um, that would provi provide a measurable change in access to the amount of water and hopefully also um, the uh, incidence of uh, health problems in the communities that we're working with in Limpopo. So to start off, um, we worked together, we brought together a workshop. Here's Bob Swap, one of the um, original leaders of the um, partnership in, uh, in that region, um, as well as the group um, that came together as a workshop. So faculty members and students from UVA and from the University of Venda, as well as community members um, who came together to discuss how we could begin to approach this. Um, this was about a year and a half ago, and you may m recognize some of the faculty members. Garrick Louis here from Systems Engineering, Nisha Bochway from Planning, um, uh, myself from Medicine, um, Jerry Learmonth from Systems Engineering. Um, and it was a tremendously um, helpful process um, to uh, hash out together what our questions were going to be and what our approach was going to be. And even better, once we got out to the communities to speak, for example, to this woman who's the chief of one of the communities that we um, work with and, and uh, who welcomed us um, in her uh, home uh, to uh, and underlined um, the importance of uh, water to her community and the fears that she had that without water her community was going to disintegrate. So in addition to meeting with the chief, we met with a women's group, we heard from the elders, um, we visited what sanitation is uh, available, um, and we took uh, some walks up the hills um, to understand what the children were doing for water in schools. Um, in fact, one of the schools has, had decided to purchase a uh, swimming pool filter um, to try to clean their water, which wasn't working very well when we um, uh, actually tested the water. Um, and uh, we really came to understand that uh, particularly the children were at terrible risk in these group environments um, for drinking contaminated water. Um, the solution of the communities had been to pipe water down um, in these, they had actually purchased PVC pipes and had um, 
dragged them up of the mountain about five kilometers into what they felt was the cleanest stream, um, put them there, and then allowed gravity to bring the water down through these pipes um, to their villages. Unfortunately, the pipes were frequently broken, and it doesn't come out very well, but this is the pool where they're actually uh, pulling, um, from which they're pulling water, and you may see that there's a fair bit of um, uh, slime, uh, it's probably not the technical term, um, for, the, for, for on top of the water, which our, uh, my water um, colleagues tell me is, is not indicative of very clean water. So as we started looking at this, the engineers immediately began to think about gravity and, um, and uh, how we might um, build tanks um, that could uh, hold more water and that could um, provide a better quality of water. But our planners said, hold on, let's, let's think for a second what's actually going to be sustainable and possible. Um, and one of the things that they suggested was that we um, ask the community what they thought. And one of the ways that we were able to ask the community that question was um, by asking them to take photos of what they felt was most important about water in their community. And this is a, a, a methodology called PhotoVoice, and I see that I'm out of time, so I'm not going to say a whole lot more about this, but it was the strategy to really involve the community in telling us what the problem was before we came in with a solution. And some of the pictures, I hope some of you may have been able to see our um, exhibit at Newcomb Hall of the pictures that were taken by the participants, but the, the the participants told us a lot. They told us, first of all, that health was not their biggest concern, that access to more water was their biggest concern. They did show us that, you know, including dead animals in their water collection area, that their water um, was contaminated, and that it was also incredibly precious. This photo is always sort of tugged at me because um, I see the, the state of this young man's clothes and yet the incredible care that he's taking to water one by one his cabbages for sale. So it speaks to me of the precious nature of water. Um, in order to try to um, follow up on what the community told us about their need for a, more water, um, we had 11 students over there this summer. This is Patrick Upchurch from the medical school working with a University of Venda student um, doing water quality testing. These are University of Venda nursing students students that are measuring children, um, helping filter water, and also taking GPS coordinates so that we can map um, the villages appropriately. This is all part of the assessment process to be able to understand how much water people have, how much water people need, and what the effect of the dirty water is. Um, the students produced incredible maps like these um, and uh, are now um, enrolled in classes um, with our faculty mentors to be able to design the prototype water systems for next year um, that we'll be able to implement with the, um, with the communities and with our partner students and faculty members at the University of Venda. So it's difficult to encapsulate um, a solution to a global health challenge like dirty water and I think that's part of the point. Um, I believe that universities are, are probably one of the 
probably the only organization that can bring together that range of expertise to try to address that problem. And I think that we also have a responsibility to our students to provide that kind of experience so that they can become involved later in addressing these challenges. And even our founder um, had a comment, of course, about uh, health being worth more than learning. Um, certainly, learning is difficult without health. Um, and uh, I am proud to say that I believe that here at the University of Virginia, we continue to be on the forefront of global health. Um, and if you'd like to learn more about that, we're having a symposium on the 6th of November um, in Jordan Hall Conference Center with uh, Dr. Tom Quinn, uh, who's a true expert in this field and a very compelling speaker. I'd invite you all to attend. There's no need for pre-registration. And uh, thank you, Rolavua um, and Chivenda, um, the language that is spoken in our, the region we work in in um, South Africa. And I'd be happy to take any questions. Many years ago, the Institute of Nutrition for Central America in Panama mm -hmm. had developed a relatively low-cost and effective weaning food. Mm -hmm. One of the names I'm not aware of that one. Was it? At, what was the base of it? Uh, that, actually, uh, I don't remember how it started out. It was done through Nevin Scrimshaw at MIT. Mm -hmm. yep. And uh, they, they developed a number of different formulas depending on what the native, uh, native grains and legumes were. Right, right. Certainly, Dr. Scrimshaw's work is still so influential. He was one of the first to really define the relationship between infection and malnutrition um, and the importance of not only calories, but also making sure that children are getting clean food and water. Um, I'm, I'm not aware of that specific name, but certainly um, there are different formulas based on what is available in, in particular regions. I know that the peanut-based formulas have been very successful in areas where people eat peanuts, like Sub-Saharan Africa, Haiti, um, have not been as successful in South Asia. And there's been a lot of controversy about that, actually, um, because uh, they don't seem to be as palatable or as acceptable in South Asia, which actually has the largest problem with malnutrition. Thank you. Yeah. Can you tell me what the university is doing with regard to Lyme disease? This is a problem. It's becoming a big problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going to Pennsylvania, New York to get help. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a really excellent question, and, and um, if I could just speak on the global health side for a moment in terms of multidisciplinarity, I think that in addition to medicine, we need to get our entomologists involved, et cetera. So the, um, the Lyme disease problem has been skyrocketing over the past three to four years. Um, the testing. Um, for example, when, when I arrived here in 1999, suggested that Lyme disease did not exist um, in our tick populations in Virginia. That has changed drastically in the past 10 years. Um, and no one, honestly, has been able to explain to me what's changed in terms of deer, in terms of white-footed mice, um, in terms of the ticks. Uh, but it's quite clear that Lyme disease is being transmitted endemically, so in our region now. We used to see it in people who had traveled to the Northeast, who had even, you know, it, it was as close to us as Maryland, but it hadn't been really here, but it's clearly now here. Um, in terms of a, 
um, coordinated response to Lyme disease. Um, certainly we're seeing it uh, regularly in our clinics now um, and working um, to help the people who are suffering from it. I will say as a practitioner um, that the science is quite uh, fuzzy. Um, in terms of what is the right thing to do um, about people who have long-term problems from Lyme disease. Uh, the, I think that the challenge has been many people in the Northeast have um, received months and months of intravenous antibiotics. Um, and for some people that has worked. It's not been clearly proven to solve the problem and in many cases has resulted in more problems from infections associated with the uh, long-term catheters that are required, um, particularly in this age of methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, which is a very common um, contaminant of that kind of catheter. Uh, we're very hesitant um, to subject people um, to that without clear evidence of benefit. Another important side effect um, that can occur from long-term administration of those kinds of broad-spectrum antibiotics that are effective against um, Lyme disease uh, is Clostridium difficile. I imagine many of you have heard of that. A, a it's an antibiotic-associated diarrhea, um, which can be really devastating and even fatal um, and is, is associated um, with that kind of long-term administration of antibiotics. So I think that that is a sort of a roundabout answer. I would say we're, we're certainly seeing and treating it in our, in our infectious disease clinic now. Um, the question of what to do about chronic Lyme disease, I believe, is an open question. And I will tell you personally, as, again, as a practitioner, that I am often um, very hesitant to start long-term intravenous antibiotics for the reasons that I just mentioned, because I don't feel that the cost-benefit analysis has been worked out yet. That's, yeah. Oral antibiotics um, in certain um, situations are acceptable. Um, the, Tetracyclines like doxycycline that people uh, that is effective um, can be very helpful, but again, they do have um, important side effects. Um, I would say that I think that this is a rapidly evolving situation um, and that more will be done. The uh, National Society of Infectious Disease Physicians is working on it. Um, many people are, are trying to determine what it is if it's not actual infection with the bug that is causing the suffering that people are experiencing following infection with Lyme disease. Um, there's no question in my mind that people are suffering, whether it is from a germ actually replicating that an antibiotic is going to affect, that's not clear to me yet. Or um, dealing with a cultural aspect, mm -hmm. what has been done in some of these programs as far as integrating witch doctors because of the power structure that exists there? Yeah. In Educating them and providing the inroads to villages um, and healthcare. Mm -hmm. And then also, what is being done as far as the latrine construction training, which often can be done for the residents of Sylvia Yeah. Um, those are great questions. Okay, so the, the first question was um, about what are we doing to integrate traditional healers um, into our. Uh, our uh, 
strategies to manage these complex uh, health problems. And the second question was, what about uh, the building of latrines and, and, how, and training in building latrines that can be done from the clinical um, uh, setting? So in answer to the first question, great question, um, we're particularly uh, well, actually, both in Haiti and South Africa, we're very lucky to have close collaboration of traditional healers. Traditional healers um, have attended trainings with our uh, physicians, um, uh, nurses, and other uh, practitioners to learn about the signs and symptoms of HIV and TB um, and to uh, talk about the way they manage it and times at which they would feel it was appropriate to refer. Um, and it's been a very successful program. Certainly traditional healers are uh, very effective at dealing with a wide variety of problems that um, Western healers are not, um, including a lot of mental health issues um, and also chronic pain. Um, and so the traditional healers have maintained their role there but have started to refer, because care is available, those patients that they know they can't cure um, with TB and HIV. Certainly that that's not accepted across the board, um, but they really have bought into uh, that sort of separation of responsibility now that there is effective therapy available. And again, that's in one particular setting in Haiti. It's not across the board, but I've been a, a very, very impressed with their eagerness to become involved um, in that process. One of the pictures, actually, of uh, the, one of the fellows from South Africa showed him with um, a lot of plants spread out. And in South Africa, uh, there's been a lot of controversy about how to treat HIV, um, and uh, traditional plants have been a real question. And he's done an excellent job of, of working um, with traditional healers to identify the plants that they have used and to actually study them um, in relation to their ability to combat not as much HIV as the opportunistic infections that often attack those who are infected with HIV. So I, I believe it's a really important aspect of uh, addressing, addressing particularly HIV AIDS, but certainly other global health challenges as well. Um, traditional healers are an important part of, of any, any response. In regards to the latrine training, um, we uh, have not started that yet in um, South Africa as part of our project. One of the challenges has been that um, South Africa has you know, the, one of the widest disparities of wealth in the whole world, right up there with Brazil. And the people in the communities we work with really want flush toilets. Um, and in a water-scarce area, I've been learning a lot about how wasteful flush toilets are. Um, and so we've been working with the community to try to make latrines or composting toilets more appealing um, so that that's actually something that is desired. Um, and we're hoping to install a composting toilet this uh, summer in one of the chief's crawls um, to be able to demonstrate that that's something that is actually um, not a second tier solution um, in a place that is struggling so much for water. I don't know if anybody saw, I think it was last week in the Washington Post, that there's a big campaign in India now that in order to get a bride, you have to have a latrine. Um, and uh, so I, apparently that's been um, terribly uh, successful, and I hope it takes, uh, takes flight and travels to some other countries so, because that's a great strategy. I have time for one more question. Um, with your uh, organization, your uh, global health, mm -hmm. are you incorporating other NPOs and, and trying to 
network through in those directions? Um, we're always open uh, to that. We, we've worked with uh, Partners in Health, Physicians for Peace, um, Operation Smile, um, and uh, also um, Bridges to Community, uh, Potters for Peace. Uh, so we're, we're trying to work with all of those organizations and, and find ways that we can help to facilitate uh, the questions that they want to answer, whether they're evaluative questions or research questions. All right, thank you very much. Enjoy the game. Go Hoos.